0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, Director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words, with her own focus. Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I spoke with Shoshana Guy, executive producer and showrunner for the 1619 project on Hulu. I'm sure you've heard of the 1619 project and probably have an opinion or two or three, but no matter how familiar you are with the original articles in the New York times or the subsequent book of essays or the podcast or the K 12 curriculum, even if you've managed to pour over all those manifestations of this work carefully, I would encourage you to watch the series because it really does bring to life the central thesis that slavery and the contributions of Black Americans are deeply entwined with so many facets of what we think of as American. Well, it brings it to life with movement and music and real people who live with despite this legacy, which really is all of us when you think about it. Shoshana Guy is a longtime news writer and producer, and her previous documentary work was High on the Hog, which is a show about how Black food changed American culture so very much in the spirit of this current endeavor. The 1619 Project has been nominated for three Emmys, Outstanding Cinematography for a nonfiction program, Outstanding Picture Editing for a nonfiction program, and Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series. If you enjoy this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Now, my conversation with Shoshana Guy about the 1619 Project. I'm sure everyone listening has heard of the 1619 project, but the coverage has been. I a, hope so. Well, it's been the coverage has been less objective, <laughs> I, I think. It you know, came to prominence in 2019 as a series of essays in the New York Times, and since it's become a book, those essays are in this book and a curriculum, et cetera. But can you talk about what was the original intention of the 1619 project? So,
1: the 1619 project that was created by Nicole Hannah Jones. I think the original intention of it, or a no, was to really reframe the nation's narrative, to really examine and look at how the legacy of slavery still impacts us today, to shine a spotlight on the contributions of Black Americans, and to really ask the country, ask the people who live in the country to really examine their history and the way that it it very clearly still permeates the society that we live in today. So as we
0: said, there was the original New York Times Sunday magazine, essays, and then this broader book drew upon those essays. And then there's a curriculum event. So why a
1: documentary series? Well, I think the wonderful thing about documentaries is it really democratizes, the medium really democratizes. Some people may not read a big, huge book. Some people may not read essays. But a lot of people will still sit down at their television and watch a documentary. And so for Nicole, I think her idea around that was to really try to expand the audience and expand the reach of the project and really put it in a different medium in the hopes that more people would come to this material and digest it and really have the experience and think about the messages that we're bringing forth in it or the information that we're bringing forth.
0: I'm sure there are ways in which
1: you can do things in the visual medium that are harder Exactly. The, just to jump in on that, you know, I think that the benefit, of course, moving it from essays to our medium was very challenging. But I think one of the the great things about our medium is that it's visual and it's emotional because you're actually meeting people and hearing from people. And those are things that you don't necessarily get in the kind of immediacy that we understand it to be in our medium
0: we'll talk about that, especially, I think, you know, we'll get to the music episode, really. Yes. Great. Yeah, Wesley Morris right there. Start. Um, I know. He's amazing. It's a very thesis-driven documentary, which I think it makes it unique in many ways. The central thesis is that more than 400 years after 1619, when enslaved people were first brought to this continent, almost nothing in our country has been untouched by the legacy of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans. And there's all sorts of sub-theses in the various pieces. It sounds a little dry. It's not that dry, but it's a real argument. And the six topics that are drawn from the original project are democracy, race, music, capitalism, fear, and justice. I think, as I watch this, as I said, it could sound a little intense, and it is. There's a lot of very- It is. Deep important things here. But I would say I did not find the experience like overwhelming. You know, sometimes I can get personally, I get weighed down or I get really angry. But I think it really wears its learning and its social urgency lightly still. And I think a big part of this is Nicole as our guide. Um mm-hmm. her presence, her presentation, her response to these tough things, even horrific things. I'm sure to some extent she's like being authentically who she is, but also obviously it's on camera. She's not just being a writer and I wonder, you know, what kind of tone did you want to take here? Let me note one thing, which is Nicole does speak the voiceover, but she doesn't speak directly to camera, for example. She doesn't. Yeah. Thinking about Nicole
1: as a presence in this documentary. One of the mediums that was in before it was a documentary series is, of course, the amazing podcast. And I think the thing about the podcast that really translated was how accessible she was. And how she used her own personal narrative, her family story, to speak to the larger experience of Black Americans. And so for us, when we were first creating the documentary, we knew that was something that we really must infuse the series with, because it's accessible. She's so likable. I I was always teasing her. She's very much a natural on camera. And so it, it, it allows us to have this vehicle to bring the audience into the storytelling. And then her writing itself It's very lyrical in nature. And so it very much translates for the essays that she wrote. And same with Wesley Morris, actually. They both write in a very lyrical way. And so their writing very much translates to our medium. So tonally, in the essays that she wrote, we could easily lift her writing into the voiceover. And then, of course, she knows this stuff inside and out. She's very well studied. So we knew that we had to have that connection, that personal connection that drew the audience in. We knew we needed the expert voices to contextualize it and give us the hard facts. And we knew that we needed real everyday Americans who embodied these stories and who would give us the emotional components in order to translate those stories and have the audience really connect on a personal level. So she walks us through that process. And I think she's the glue that puts those pieces together, if you will.
0: She also, she's been working as, as a working reporter for decades. Uh, she's now mm-hmm. an author and is starting as a professor, I believe, in the fall. And She's already started, yes. She's, already started. She just finished her first year, yep. And so we do see her, Always with a, what I would call a reporter's notebook or a steno pad or a legal pad. She's always like writing and reading from her past. Yes. But at the same time, she's not a completely disinterested party the way we might think a reporter might be. She often responds to challenges when a civil rights activist talks about being tortured in prison. She expresses concern and, and, and at a point she wells up a little bit with her family, certainly, mm-hmm. but with others as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the notebook, first of all, was hilarious because it was a big point of contention. Roger Ross Williams, one of the directors and the executive producer and the owner of One Story Up Productions that produced the series, he, he had the notebook. First of all, she had that big, if you'll notice in the beginning, she has a big, in reparations, you notice it because reparations we actually shot last, but she has the big yellow notebook. And Roger was just on set being like, I cannot stand the notebook. So we we narrow the notebook down to something that was more fashionable. And the associate producers did a lot of, and PAs did a lot of like, you know, gluing the questions into the notebook. But it was natural for her to have a notebook because and she was like, I have to have the notebook. That's what I do. I work. So you're really watching a reporter at work and on a journey bringing you these stories. So I think that's just a natural element of it. But she isn't afraid to interact. The beautiful thing about Nicole is that What you see is really what you get. She's really the real deal. And she really approaches these stories with a lot of passion and a lot of empathy. And you just really don't have to, you know, as directors and as showrunners and people who are often tasked with working with people who haven't been in our medium, it really wasn't hard with her because she just being herself. And that really translated into our medium. She was empathetic and emotional in the places where she really felt it. And we were able to capture that. And she's funny when she's able to disengage with people and tease them and, you know, just be herself. Really. In Democracy, the first episode and
0: one of the subtheses here, I think, is that in many ways, black Americans have helped America on its path to actually trying to live up to its democratic ideals. It's based upon a, an essay written by Nicole and the director here, as you mentioned, is Roger Ross Williams, an esteemed director. And we see a montage of the civil rights movement, and the images are moving quite rapidly. You know, it's almost as if we catch a glimpse, maybe orienting ourselves a little bit, and then we're on to the next. And it even seemed quicker than the editing in some of the later episodes. Often, you know, in series that are, I'm going to say broadly educational, and I, I don't want to put this in a box because I don't think it's solely educational, but... We're allowed to settle it in a little bit, you know, in contrast, I think of like the Ken Burns, you know, slowly panning across the daguerreotype here. This moves very quickly.
1: Could you talk about that kind of editing strategy? Well, there's so much material to get through. I think these first, you know, it's like, well, here's the uh, two hour special on democracy. I mean, we just had to whittle down and whittle down. And part of that was having to translate out of the essay. And how do you make the density of an essay translate into our medium? We were constantly whittling down, constantly <laughs> shaping it. And so I think part of the pacing of it was us just trying to get a lot of the information that we want to get across. And <laughs> we're just jamming a lot in is basically, I think, what ended up happening. And then but we did want it to move we did make a conscious choice. Pacing is a conscious choice. The, the project that I did with Roger Ross Williams before that was Hire Mahog. And we mm-hmm. really made a choice to create a very slow pace, mm-hmm. almost to the point where you're like, when are we moving on to the next thing? And that was a conscious choice. But I think with this, given the amount of information that we had to get through and we really wanted to keep the audience engaged because these are really weighty topics that don't necessarily translate to the medium, we wanted to keep the visuals and the music and the pacing moving. So the people weren't like, oh God, this is just, you know, I feel like I'm reading an essay and I don't want to be, I want to be watching television, you know. You mix a lot of the styles
0: that we'd expect, again, to see again of in a historical educational documentary. And I want to say again, I don't think this completely fits in that box. We see archival footage. We see shots of historical documents. We see some cinema verite, for instance, voter registration in Georgia, Union Drives in Alabama, New York, experts speaking to the camera, many of whom are academics, but- What stood out to me as being a little bit different and unusual is there are a lot of shots, I'm going to call them stage shots, and I don't mean that in a negative Mm way, stage shots of individuals. These are motion shots, but the people are generally kind of standing still, they might turn a little bit, and facing the camera. And often, interestingly, I'd say maybe in a third of the shots or so, there's a stylized American flag in the background. Can you you talk to me about the importance? They, They clearly are important. And why are they important for the series?
1: In this episode, in particular, the story that Nicole tells about her father and his relationship to the flag and how embarrassed she was as a child. She was like, look what this country's done to black people. Why are you waving the flag in the yard? But then as she comes to really more deeply understand the contributions of black people, she really comes to the conclusion that black people have just as much of a right to that flag. In fact, sometimes even more in some cases, have a right to be patriotic about the country based on the contributions that they gave. We wanted to play with that image throughout, in particular, that episode as this idea of patriotism. And, you know, I think that when we think about patriotism, we often do have in our minds a certain thing. And unfortunately, a lot of times that does not include Black people. And so we really wanted to visually line up or put in place Black people and the American flag. Because we were here from the beginning and we contributed the whole way along. And so we do have a right to our patriotism and to our pride in the country. I think the other interesting strategy you have here is you also
0: rely on the audience to be smart. (laughs) So you show them some stuff, I think, sometimes that could be misinterpreted. Let me give you one example that I really liked is you have a brief scene from Pam Greer's 1974, Foxy Brown. And she, she's saying to this white guy, like, oh, I know I don't you, I don't deserve your white mm-hmm. body. And it just could be completely misinterpreted. It's within mm-hmm. the section on this distorting and oppressive legacy of minstrelsy. The one thing that you don't talk about is that Foxy Pam slash Foxy Brown is saying this because she's actually using these white guys, these white drug dealers prejudice against them. She's fooling them. And I won't give you any spoilers. Things don't work out well for them. Um, Do you want to explain, like in a lot of documentaries, they might explain all that? You don't.
1: We don't. You know, in that particular section, we're really talking about the exploitation of Black women and the use of Black women and our bodies and our wombs to create wealth in the country. And the way that translated it over time to create stereotypes around Black women, around Black motherhood. Of course, that clip is a piece of satire, and we know that it's satire. So yes, we are relying on the audience to kind of get that it's satire in one way. But also just to show how these ideas about Black women creep into popular culture. They creep into our everyday culture until we believe them in some ways. And of course, in that case, she's using it satirically, but we wanted to find ways, again, to layer. And I think that's our way of layering very complex ideas. And again, these ideas, they're very emotional, they're very deep. And so when we can find moments of brief levity, you know, we took the chance. One of the ways in which the
0: series diverges from the essays is in its focus on particular people at some points. And I should say the essays themselves, Nicole does discuss her family, but I want to talk a little bit about Chrissy Sample. This is one, by the way, I 15 years ago brought home. Twin boys from the Nick Unit, Unit U, and, uh, you know, to my Brooklyn apartment. And this is the first time in your series I cried, I think, but not the last. So it's a very poignant example. She's pregnant with twins. And despite not being impoverished, importantly, I think, and she has relatively good health care, her doctor simply won't listen to her concerns and really can't see her pain. And you tie this inability of the doctor to really see her, to understand her pain, all the way back to slavery and to the myths that whites created that Black people did not really experience pain. Uh, I've always suggested this was partly because white enslavers were trying to shield themselves from what they were doing to some extent. But you actually say in that moment, in this moment in the 2000s, that legacy is still right there.
1: It's a very complicated thing, right? But at the same time... When you look at the fact that Black women are experiencing maternal mortality and infant mortality at astronomically higher levels than other women, even when we point to Serena Williams, she clearly doesn't have a problem with her finances or isn't impoverished, and yet she still encountered this. And so you really have to look at the experience of Black women in this country, what has happened to us, the trauma and the beliefs that are still permeating our healthcare system. That is just something that really must be looked at.
0: And it's really deep, right? I mean, your suggestion here is the insidiousness of it really lies in the fact that it's unconscious. It's not
1: this doctor isn't trying to do a bad job. Correct. That's such a complicated answer. Look, we know that there are a myriad of reasons of why a woman may give birth prematurely or may have complications. But the consistent thing that continues to happen, the consistent stories that we're hearing from Black women, is that they're not being listened to, that their pain is being ignored. And when you look at the history, when you think about Black women on plantations having to give birth, still working in deep, deep heat all day long with no childcare, with no, you know, our pain was ignored. That is something that is historically accurate and historically true. And those things, they do get underneath the fabric of the country and they continue to permeate. And so, you know, we're making that observation. And that is part of the thesis of the episode.
0: Throughout the series, the episodes do not adhere to strict chronological, strict chronological approach. And it really, again, the first uh, episode sets the pattern for this. It's quite free with place and time. We're all over the East Coast and Iowa a little bit. My wife's family is from Waterloo, by the way.
1: My family's also from Waterloo.
0: My father was born there anyways. You know, I actually took out a piece of paper and tried to chart it a little bit. Like I'm in 1619. Oh, I'm current day. I'm in revolution of oh, 19th century. It's, it really moves through time in this way. Because to the me, it's really impressive that your uh, editors and your director was able to hold this together. But me that this is very fitting, right? The thesis is that the legacy of slavery and of the past is with
1: us everywhere. Yeah, well, the past is not in the past. The past is in the present. And we move back and forth through history. We go from history to modern day because that's really the thesis of the project. These experiences that we're having, whether it's a fight for democracy, whether it's suffering under unfair labor laws, or suffering with income disparity, or whether it's Black women still continuing to suffer high infant mortality rates, these are all things that harken back to the past. So we're using everyday experiences that are happening right now, and then we're toggling back and forth to make the connection.
0: One of the ways you bracket and hold together this first episode is around the fight for fair voting in Georgia in 2022. Why did you want to start here and really build your episode around that? We're going to see what happens
1: in this election. (laughs) We're in a very, very interesting time where I think it's fair to say that the fight for our democracy is afoot. And so this next election that's coming up in 2024, let me go back and say that part of it is you're working within, at, when you're documenting thing, you're working within the time period that you have. And so the elections that we had during the time period that we're shooting it were the primaries in 2022. So we were using that as an example to examine what the state of our democracy is now. And really our democracy is in a pretty significant crisis. If you think about what happened on January 6th, If you think about the fact that a former president of the United States is now being indicted on charges of meddling with an election, we're in a very precarious time right now as it relates to our democracy. So there's no way that we couldn't use what's happening in our election system to make these arguments.
0: Side note here, I actually voted for Al Gore in Southeast Atlanta uh, years ago. And I can say that I spent over two hours in line in the sun and I was very grateful for the water that people are passing around. And by the way, the general spirit of people, like, stay, stay in line, hang in there. So you really show us Helen Butler and the folks working with her are really fighting for democracy in that state. The other thing you're able to do in the series is kind of indirectly discuss some of the pushback that the 1619 Project has got. So Mm -hmm. early on in this episode of democracy, we are in Williamsburg, Virginia. We're talking about the revolution with historian Woody Holton. And Holton's thesis is that, we won't go to all the details, but that yeah, had local British royal authorities in Virginia not threatened to free the enslaved people of the colony. The white South may not have supported the American Revolution. Um, mm-hmm. And This is one of the points that has come under attack <laughs> from people who know very little about American history, but also from American historians all over from, from, again, from the pages of of New York Times to the New York Review of Books to some journals. Nicole and and Woody Holton recognize this, address it briefly. Can you talk about that?
1: When we first started, I had one of the researchers pull up everything that anyone ever said about the 1619 Project. This idea of the American Revolution was certainly one of the ones that was just like front and center. I think that one of the things about the details of history is that There are many, many factors. And so we know that this was one of the factors. So let's just be very clear that we're not saying this was the only factor, you know, but this was one of the factors. And I think that he makes the argument that without Virginia, nothing happened. You know, and that this was one of the factors that pushed the American Revolution into its launch. Listen, this project was deeply fact-checked on multiple levels, both internally and externally. And the events of history are not only ever one thing. And so we're very careful to say that this was one of the factors and not the only factor. But also, the project was not going to shy away from the criticism. We had our facts right. They were correct. We made sure that we were all buttoned up. But we weren't going to be afraid because there was a lot of angry people talking about the American Revolution. Again, fairly early in this episode, Lincoln
0: pops up. This is an episode on democracy. So viewers won't be surprised to see of him, hear of him. Uh, But this is not the Lincoln that some might expect, say, the great emancipator. Can you tell us about the incident that you're showing here and how it complicates that easy picture of Lincoln?
1: We know that Lincoln came to this idea of emancipation. He didn't come to it of, you know, just all of a sudden was like, we must emancipate the enslaved. In fact, he himself resisted it and tried to find ways around it. And so we tell that story of one of the solutions being that he invites five leaders from the African-American community and says, you know, I think the better thing here would be if you guys left. And they say in no uncertain terms, no, we're not leaving. This is our country. We've contributed, we've fought for it, and we'll be right here, continuing to be here. Again, I think we like to think about, I think many times, whether it's the way that we're taught in schools or the way that culturally we understand the history of America, that's very black and white, right? Lincoln was the good guy and he was the emancipator. But in fact, it's much more complicated than that. And so we're getting into the nuances of that and showing clearly. Lincoln was a complicated guy, and you know it wasn't the black and white version of the way that we're taught. Talk- I'd like to
0: talk about the music episode. I really enjoyed this episode. I think music is a great way into this material. Just a little side note here, when I used to teach a class I really enjoyed teaching was called The Jazz Age. We'd start with Toni Morrison's Jazz, great novel, sometimes considered minor mm-hmm. Morrison. <laughs> I mean, any other writer would be their best work. You have here, it's based upon an essay by Wesley Morris. Well, this great episode is really based around a discussion between Nicole and Wesley. She finally puts down the notebook and picks up a whiskey tumbler. Uh, and it's an episode, you know, you, it starts with what I'd call a house party, you know, music and joy. Talk to me about when you are doing this, Wesley Morris is a great writer. You only add to his insights with music and motion and sound.
1: Yeah. This was a really fun episode to put together. I mean, look, the, series is, it's very emotional and it can be very heavy. And while there were moments of that, you know, heaviness in this episode, particularly around the legacy of Minstrelsy, it was a moment where we got to celebrate and take a little breath, if you will. We just had a really great time putting it together. Obviously, music is so core to Black culture, and so enjoyable, and really the thesis around American music is Black music. I always get that right, because it Black music is, is it American It's both ways, music? I think it works both it's ways. It's both ways, <laughs> <laughs> it works both ways. Yeah. It was just a lot of fun to put together, and the shoots are really fun. Nicole says that her favorite interview of all the interviews, maybe of all interviews of all time, was with Nile Rogers. It was just a great deal of fun putting it together, and of course, Wesley. When they have a great relationship and really good chemistry. So they're already friends, as it were. So that really helps us.
0: I want to dig into Nile Rogers in just a moment. But before we do that, I think one of the things you show is you do, do a great job of showing the origins of some of the key characteristics of jazz and Black music in general, which is improvisation. And I think you mm-hmm. pretty compellingly locate the origins of this in the nature of the spirituals and even field songs sung by enslaved peoples. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that, how you show that relationship?
1: We have always improvised in our music, and I think it cuts across genres. Even right now, I'm doing a project and we're interviewing this blues man, and he doesn't write down anything. Like, every song is always different. He has a style that he works in, but every song is always different. And I think that we talk about that as a way to show in the episode how Black people has continued to transmute or to have continued to push the the boundaries of a genre in order to create whole new genres, right? So I think out of improvisation, all these new genres of music are born. And so we track that over time. And I think improvisation is a big piece of how Black people have been able to continue to create different genres of music.
0: In your second episode on race, you really walk us through the story of the creation and stubborn persistence of America's rigid racial categories. Ones that you compellingly show were based upon the needs of the slavery system. We see a young couple who want to get married, pushing back on these kind of defining and limiting restrictive terms. And implicitly in the music episode, I think you pick this up again. You show a similar dynamic where the strict categorizations of the music industry that started, you know, when records first were starting to be pressed. Continue on to today. You visually demonstrate the hitch chart and show how the term race, as in race records, become soul over time. You don't specifically say it, but it seems like those are connected.
1: Yeah, they're connected because, as Wesley Morris says in the, in the episode, he's like, oh God, every time the Grammys come on, I'm like, oh no, is yeah. No, yeah. is this white person going to sweep? Once you let them into the category, they, they take home everything. I mean, that's a quote from him in the episode. Yeah, I think that The way that we have categorized race in this country translates across all aspects of life, even into music. And what is at the basis of that is money. So it's not surprising that the categorizing of race would filter into music because it's also about when you're making that music, who's going to make the money? I think the nuanced
0: portrayal of Louis Armstrong is great here. Here's one of our great artists, certainly a great musical artist, but in many ways, just a great modernist, someone who, you know, I've argued was doing with music what Picasso and Cezanne were doing with paint, you know, pulling things apart, making you question, is this melody? Is this rhythm? What is this singing? Is this an extension of voice or is this more like an instrument? But at the same time, as you show, as time passes, some of the ways he interacted with the audience gains a tread maybe on some problematic approaches. Could you talk about that?
1: I think the point of that beat in the episode is to really show how minstrelsy really permeated and continues to permeate our society, both in terms of the way that white people see Black people, but also in the way that Black people see themselves. And so we're using the complicated nature of Louis Armstrong and his artistry and his relationship to race and the way that white people saw him and the way that he presented himself as an example of that.
0: I love the interview with Nile Rodgers. I always love to see Nile Rodgers, this great creator of funk and producer, and just general inspiration. I think for music, and I was really struck by things that on the surface might look like just fun and joy and party. Oh, by the way, I had a similar discussion with Alan Hughes about you know about Tupac I and mean, Tupac's party mm-hmm. music, and was it purely party music? Yeah. He talks about disco and how it brought together this huge range of people, multiracial, multisexual, multigendered people. And when he wrote Everybody Dance, he meant it. It's really a political statement, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, he says in the documentary, you know, he was an organizer in the Black Panther Party. And what he says in the documentary is like, how did I all of a sudden I became a better organizer by creating this music? And I just had to write this song, Everybody Dance, clap your hands, clap your hands.
0: I think. In some ways, the origins of *The Freak* are political as well. You know, the story here is, I won't tell the whole story. It's fun, long, stem-winder yeah. involving Grace Jones and Studio 54. But, you know, he's sent away by a bouncer who basically says, ah, oh, fuck off uh, to him. Yeah, And he plays with that and transposes and works it through and turns rejection and, and into joy and pain into joy. To me, that—that that is black music
1: it really is and he's written for so many people that's the thing he's so prolific and a lot of the songs that you know may not even from duran duran to madonna to you may Bo- not even know that yeah. he was to david bowie you don't even know that he's writing on them and i think that's the kind of joy of it and, and in the documentary nicole re-asked them like do you consider that sound to be black and he says absolutely
0: speaking of that you know personal note here you talk about the backlash against disco and how many ways this was a rejection of the people who embraced that music. I know in that period I was, you know, into the punk and post-punk and new wave world and I kept disco at a distance. Really what hit me here was hollow notes because Hall notes was something I couldn't see at the time. I couldn't hear them at the time. And I've gone back to them more recently and been like, "Whoa, <laughs> you you've Gone,' which is an amazing song and one of the few songs in the 1980s with the jazz sax break it actually makes sense." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Wow, this is beautiful music." And as you point about that and Steely Dan, and it's black music, it really is. As
1: Farder Hadley says, "Yacht Rock is black as hell," you know, and also has has a black audience. Yeah, it's all you hear the sounds of blackness in all of these just different genres. After
0: James Brown, Steely Dan is probably the most sampled band um,
1: right. in, in rap.
0: <laughs> and there's a reason. Yeah. So I want to ask a bit about the introduction to episode four on capitalism. And this was written by Matthew Desmond, and this is directed by Christine Turner. And the introduction mm-hmm. here is just funny and acerbic and so smart. Basically, it's set to Gil Scott Heron's 1970, Whitey's on the Moon, which is a song which basically, well, it's a poem song who basically contrasts the lived experience of America's poor, notably Black Americans, and America's refusal to deal with that reality—it's all contrasted with the efforts spent on the moon landing. And you have this great visual montage where we see cotton being picked, other crops being picked, and then packages on the belt at Amazon, where the people—some people work there—are called amazingly called pickers. And then we finish with Jeff Bezos returning from space and thanking Amazon customers and workers for paying for space tourism. It's funny, but it really does nail the whole thesis of the series that little has changed in some areas.
1: Well, I mean, this is the thing. Gil Scott han wrote that song 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago. Was it 70 or 71? Whatever the case is, it's more than 50 years and it still holds true. White men are still launching themselves into outer space when people on the ground do not have enough to eat, when the income disparity is getting starker and starker and starker. So, you know, he was really a prophet in some ways, Gil Scott Heron, because he was talking about something that unfortunately still holds true. So we really thought it was an amazing opportunity to use his artistry in that moment. There's so much in
0: this episode to discuss, but I did want to talk about one thing, which is at one point, we look at some of the records kept on a plantation. I use that term advisedly. We can talk about that in a second. And sometimes this could be a very dry, you know, portion of a documentary, but these records really come to life when we really understand what they are. We see the amount of cotton each enslaved person has picked and then their quote-unquote monetary value at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. And these could be just dry records, but what you show is that the plantation is not this slow-paced, inefficient place. It's really assembly line. It's a work camp. It's 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 driven.
1: I think the way that we often think about history can be quite romanticized in that way. And even the way that we use language, that's why Nicole uses forced labor camps rather than plantations, because that's really what they were. And when you really look at these records, you see a name beside it, and then how old they were, and then the amount that they picked, and what they were worth becomes very clear. And it really starts to be less generic in a way, then really starts to hone down in, into the specificity of it. And that specificity is incredibly brutal.
0: The final episode is called Justice. And really, Nicole says it's time for this country to pay the debt that it started in 1619. And she means it both in terms of equality, in terms of both political and economic. And I know that the, the series isn't all about solutions. It's trying to show us something. It's trying to show, like you said, reframe. But I did wonder about this way forward. And I had in mind kind of two kind of statements in the series. One is by Helen Butler, the organizer in Georgia, who says that she hopes as the country becomes sometimes called majority minority, as people of color become the majority, that protecting voting rights and democracy will become easier. The other is when Nicole does note that the BLM protests, Black Lives Matter protests, wake up George George Floyd's murder, were both super widespread all over the country, all sorts of communities mm-hmm. and clearly multiracial. What hope do you think the series gives us for the way forward?
1: One of my heroes, Brian Stevenson, really talks a lot about how there's a reason why we have truth before we have reconciliation. In order to have reconciliation, we have to have the truth. And so I think what the project does is it's really asking Americans, all Americans, to really examine the way that this history has shaped us so that we might find a way forward, so that we might come up with solutions, that we might have less of an income gap, so that we might be able to have less Black babies dying, so that we might live everybody in a better society. And so I think that if we don't have that information and we don't grapple with that history, then we can't do that. So the hope is really in facing ourselves.
0: I certainly think that you, Nicole, all your directors and writers are helping us face ourselves, and I congratulate you on this amazing series. I encourage everyone, uh, even if you read some of the material previously, go see the series. It really builds upon what's there. It shows all sorts of different lights, and, and it's just uh, a terrific education for me. I thought I knew some of this stuff, and I, I didn't know it, a millionth of it. So thank you so much. Thank you for the series. Thank you for You're being so here. so welcome. And congratulations on the I Emmy mean, Number. Thank you. So appreciate it. Do you have a hidden gem,
1: a documentary that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? I'm going to do a shameless plug right now because my brother made a documentary about my father. It's on PBS right now called The Death of My Two Fathers. My father died of cancer many, many years ago, about 25 years ago. And we, as a journalist, we recorded eight hours of footage with him. So it's a story about how you grieve and how you move through loss, but it also is layered with interracial relationships and relationships with black folks in relationship to the country of the United States. And I just think you did a really great job on it and I think people should watch it. So that's my shameless plug for my brother's that. film that just came out and it's on PBS if you wanna watch it.